turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy 3.16, and we'll pick up this week in our series on the mission and values of Hickory Bible Church, and how that relates to a vision to carry them out. And vision, as we said last week, is just simply how a church goes in the process from once they've defined who they are, what are the values they stand for, and the mission they're on, what are they about, and our mission stated simply is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. The vision for that is the way in which you hope to get there, to say if this is who we are and this is what we're here to do, how are we actually going to do it? And there's no real secret to that. It's found in the Word of God. If you have grounded your values in the Word of God and said this is what a church is to be, who they are, and you are able to identify in the Word of God also, this is the aim to which the church is moving then it would make sense, wouldn't it? What would follow is then that vision that gets you from who you are to what you uh, desire to do should also be able to be found in the Word of God. As in, it wouldn't take me to look at our value statement and then our vision for wanting to make more disciples of Jesus to the glory of God to really like craft, guys, I think this is the way we're going to get there. Apart from being able to sit down with my Bible, open it up like I'm going to do today, and see from the Word of God, it gives you the vision or direction to actually accomplish the mission. And so our Vision and Value series is nothing more than standing in front of you, the people of God, with the Word of God, saying, this is what God has given us. This is how he's explained it. This is how he has set it forth. And now it's our, it's our responsibility to carry it out. And so that's what this Vision and Value series is, how a church can cross that bridge if you want to go from identity of who they are to activity, what they're about, and the vision is just merely telling you how you're going to get there. Last year we said that first value, if we're going to get to be a people who make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God, of course the first value of our church would have to be that we're a Christ-exalting people, because it has to be true in me if it's going to make a difference in you. I mean, seriously, as a preacher... What greater fraud would there be in the world than a preacher to stand up and not want to exalt Christ in his own heart, in his own life, and then try to tell his people to? I couldn't do it. And not say I, I do it personally perfect, but in my life, if abiding in Christ and bearing fruit for him isn't foremost in my heart, what good is it for me to stand up and try to tell you how it's done? And that's true for all of our lives. Any, any influence you have in anybody else's life, um, somebody you're discipling, a child in your home, a friend that you have, how empty it is when you're trying to convince somebody uh, something they should do when you're not doing it. And so as a church at large, how could we possibly make a dent in our society, in the community we're in, the people were around to, to say, man, Christ is everything, but not really believe it and live it. So Christ exalting is foremost in our life. That's why it's, it's the foremost value we have to abide in him and to bear much fruit for him and to bring glory to the Father. Now, the question is, how then, do you, if, you, if that's that aim, what's the guide and the guard to keep you on that aim? And that's where our second value today is to talk about being word-centered, as in the word of God is, is that which guards us from from departing from that path, and it does guide us down the path to some specifics. And we look to God's word to tell us how we are to exalt Christ, or if we want to say this, how we are to worship God. 
And so when we say we're a Christ-exalting church and then following up with that, we're a word-centered church, words matter, distinctions matter there. That we're saying we're here to exalt Christ, we're here to worship God. We're not here being distinctive with our words, being particular with them, precise with them. We don't come to worship the Bible. We, we, we're not word worshipers, we're God worshipers. People that would have a, a text, false religions out there, some of them have a holy text. You mess with that text, you're done. You'll be executed. I'm glad we don't take it that far. Because we're not here to worship the Bible. We're here to worship the God who inspired the Bible. And yes, I'm not separating them out and saying that to, well, there's, you know, God and then there's God's word. They're his words, but we're not here to sing songs about the Bible. We just sang songs to glorify Christ. He's our savior. The word of God is what tells us of him. So we're not, if you want to use the phrase, bibliolaters. We get that word Bible from the Greek biblos, which just meant in the time of the New Testament, a book. So a book worshiper. We're not book worshipers. We're Christ worshipers. We're Christ exalters. But we do worship the God of the word according to the word of God, if you want to say it in a sentence and remember it. We gather every week to worship the God of the word. So who that God is, what he's like, is found in the word that he gave us. So we worship the God of the word according to the word of God. And that's how that works. Or at least should work. And so we take time in a series like this to highlight in our lives the need for us to be faithful worshipers of God, Christ exalters, and people whose lives are centered around the word of God. So that it's our guard and it's our guide. And we'll look today at a verse that is, is foremost in explaining that. It really answers the question of why be a word-centered church. What's the reason for it? Well, the reason for it will be clear in the verses I read to you today, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Now I'm going to read verses 10 to 17, a little bit wider of a context, because Though as powerful as verses 16 and 17 are to commit to memory and to know in your heart why you are a word-centered Christian, um, it helps to know that these verses occurred within a context of, of Paul the Apostle near the end of his life. He was concerned not just for the church at large in the days they were in uh, being moved from the worship and exaltation of Jesus Christ by nature of false teachers, both who taught false doctrine and lived false lives sensuous lives. You read that in chapter 3. Uh, but he had a particular disciple in mind in 2 Timothy he wrote to named Timothy. Imagine that. And he, he was trying to shore up the faith and the resolve of this disciple of his. In the same way, we need that, don't we? We need a voice in our lives that says, 2 Timothy 3, 1, despite, realize friends, difficult days will come. And that's the days that Paul writes this in and those are the days that we live in. So nothing's changed. From the early time of the church until now, we live in these difficult days. And you read of, of some of the debauched men and women of these days who would want to corrupt God's people. 
And Paul says, no, that's, that's the way the currents, the tides of culture are moving, like a fast-moving river flowing this way towards perishing in eternity and not just floating along, being swept along by false teaching and false teachers. There is one rock you can stand on to stand against that tide, against that current. And it's the rock of Scripture. That's the foundation, he's going to say in verses 16 and 17. So now you get a little context for why Paul writes those two verses. But let me read from verse 10, and you'll kind of hear what's going through Paul's mind and heart and what he's trying to help Timothy to see that leads him to the high point of that section, which is you need to stand on the word. It's got to be the center of your life. 2 Timothy 3 verse 10 writes to his beloved disciple, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate Equipped for every good work. This is God's word to us. Through it, may his Holy Spirit change us. Have you ever looked up here or in your experience of attending the church, wondered why I or any other speaker stands behind a pulpit? Some of you are like, absolutely not. Never's crossed my mind. Moving on. But for those of you who might be curious, where did this whole idea of standing in front of people with the word of God opened at a pulpit actually come from? I would imagine your first inclination would be to think, well, I hope maybe it's in the Bible that that's where it comes from. Well, it doesn't. It's a tradition. You could look through the Bible and try to find it and you won't because if you look through the Bible and, and find somebody who stands up and speaks for God, speaks to the people of God, you'll find it in all sorts of circumstances and situations. You'll find Jesus sitting down at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and teaching the crowds outside. You'll, stand, you'll find Jesus sitting down inside of a synagogue teaching from the scrolls to some of the religious people. You'll find Jesus teaching in a house. Because I have toddlers immediately, I was thinking of green eggs and ham in a house with a mouse and a box and a fox, but I digress. But that point remains. If you're looking to find how the word of God is to be properly taught by way of behind a pulpit in front of people in a public, you won't find it because it's both public and private. It's both sitting and standing. It can be to the masses. It can be to just a few. So you don't find it in scripture. You find it in church tradition. 
Interestingly enough, there's nothing really written on it for the first couple centuries of the church. It's not until 250 AD there was a church father from North Africa named uh, Cyprian who records in just talking, I guess, journaling about a certain day the church was gathered on a Sunday in his church. And a, a man who had been persecuted for the faith showed up and they wanted to give him a platform to speak from. And he actually mentions a pulpit. Uh, in front of the church where this man spoke from. So we can surmise from that that by 250 AD, maybe there was in some places some tradition of a pulpit and a person standing behind it. Now, we don't know if that was just because it would make sense because back then without amplification, it would be the easiest way for lots of people to hear you and that's it. Moving on in church history, you find in the medieval ages between the 6th and 14th century, the, the rise of the Roman Catholic Church and if you have ever visited one, even till today, you might remember what it looks like on the inside. And you wouldn't see a pulpit in the Word of God as the center. You would see the altar with the sacraments as the center. That was the high point of the gathering of the people of God. What you might see, and even in that picture, is along one of the two side pillars, you may have some wraparound stairs leading up to some form of elevated pulpit where you could teach from, and then you might even catch in that picture too, there would be a lectern, which wouldn't be for the primacy of preaching or teaching, it would be for a reading like we did at the beginning of a service. So that's how it went for the Middle Ages until the Protestant Reformation where amongst a, a, a number of reasons for there needing to be change in the church, one of them was the reformers saw the need for the word of God to be at the center of the lives of the people, particularly as it is taught, not the word of man, whether it be the pope or any bishop or priest. That, that the pope was not authoritative. The pope was not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, and Christ's words are what should be the guide for faith and practice in the life of a Christian. So it was in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation that you started to see a return of the word of God to the, if you want to call it, the center of the worship of God's people. If immediately pulpits came along with that, so be it. We stand in that tradition. Why that little um, side path down church history? Well, I would say from time to time, it is good for us to be reminded of the shoulders that we stand on and the things that were fought for. The return of the primacy of the word of God to the people of God in the worship of God came at a cost. It came at a cost of lives. None other than William Tyndale, who by the age of 42 was a martyr because he had the simple hope to translate the Bible in its time, the, there was just given to the priest, the, the Vulgate in Latin, that the commoner in England should be able to have a copy of the scriptures to read for themselves. Is that too much to ask? Well, it was, according to Henry VIII and his lackeys, who, who kept Tyndale on the run for 12 years. And William Tyndale was even willing to say, look, I will gladly come back to England and turn myself in if you would just let me finish translating the Bible into the tongue of the common person so that we all can read it. And the king said no. And eventually Tyndale was sold out by a, a false friend who handed him over and he spent a year and a half in a prison, and then he was executed. All for what he said, so that the plowboy could know more than the prelate. And 
God was faithful to that request. Because we have a copy of the Bible in our hands today, don't we? 500 years later, we have an English Bible because he was willing to die for it. By the age of 42, I'm 42. And I read that and go, what have I done? He gave his life to the translation of the word of God into English. And here we are all glad recipients of it. So it's good to remember that value not just in our modern times, but looking backwards and see what it cost. In church history, even in that microcosm of a lesson in the Reformation, can, can show us how something good, like a, a thing like observing the sacraments, turned into something bad, displaced the authority of the church from Christ in his word, to people believing that it was by works that they were going to be saved. And that's where the word of God is that guard and it's that guide against the traditions of men that can eventually subsume what is clear from the teaching of the word. And why we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3.16 to establish that is because there is not a better starting point to look to God's word to see the timeless truths of the power of God's word so that we can keep it as central in our lives. I'm not, I mean, this is the starting point and it's a short one. It's two short verses But from these flow all of the reasons that we have to come to our Bible thankful for what it is. And the two things we will see today, what it is, are that your Bible is truthful and your Bible is useful. And if you grab the notes on your way in, uh, the paper copy, and see that there's two, we're actually going to only get through one. We're going to see today why we believe our Bible is truthful, just from that verse and then how that just springs forth through the rest of scriptures. And then next week we'll come back and talk about the usefulness of the word of God. But I want to say this at the beginning of that. When you think about your Bible is truthful and useful. If you remember anything today, remember those two words and why they matter. Because... To try to separate those two out and to, to say is one more important than the other is to have an incomplete or inadequate Christian faith. Think about it. If you were to just emphasize the truthfulness of the Bible and why it's, it matters that it's truthful, to the um, detriment of its usefulness, what could that possibly produce in a Christian's life? So You know some who are very truthful but they just don't seem very useful. As in everything is just a matter of of doctrinal, propositional truths, but you see no change in their lives, let alone them trying to do anything for anyone else, except for arguing for the truthfulness of Scripture. It's an imbalance. And, And truthfulness in your faith, holding steady to the doctrines of the faith and knowing them and believing them and celebrating them in the absence of usefulness can produce hypocrisy. In the same way, to highlight the usefulness of your Bible, and I just need to go and do, and I don't need to care about inerrancy and sufficiency and clarity and authority. Just tell me what to do. That overemphasis on the usefulness of your Bible to the neglect of knowing its truthfulness doesn't lead to hypocrisy. It can lead to heresy. And that's, if you want to give an image, this is the path that we drive uh, the car of our Christian life down. And there is, there is a ditch you can swerve into on either side. 
If you're not careful, if it's all about the truthfulness of the Bible to the neglect of your usefulness, you just swerve hard always to the left and you crash into the ditch of hypocrisy. I know everything about the Bible and I live out very little of it. Or you can crash it into the other side and just be so passionate about, you know, it's just love God, love people. I don't even know where it says that, but that's what we're here to do. But you have no doctrinal undergirding to that faith. And so you can get blown around, Ephesians says. Back and forth, unstable, with every wind of false doctrine. And eventually your faith falters. Where do you think the deconstruction movement came from today? People, I mean, you hear some of them. They're still zealous for good deeds. Christians deconstructing the doctrine of their faith. They want to still be useful people, but they have no time for the truthfulness of the word. And in fact, they're going to find ways to pull it apart. So that's why this mini-series matters in our vision and values, because I just want to be able to fill out for us as we start this new year and move forward as a church, as we want to be Christ-exalting and bear fruit for his glory, when we come to the word of God, we see that it's at the center of our lives, not on the periphery, and it centers it, we center ourselves on it, looking to its truthfulness and its usefulness. And by God's grace, it's right there in verse 16. The truthfulness of the word. All scriptures inspired by God. Shortcut to the end of the sermon today and next week. That's the truthfulness of it. All scripture is inspired by God. That's why we believe we have a truthful Bible. And the usefulness of it. It's profitable. There's the word useful. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's its usefulness. All right, spoiler alert, you have the end. Now let's go back and fill it in. And today we'll just expound upon the truthfulness of the Bible that's in your hand. So let's start with just that simple phrase, all scripture is inspired by God. What does it mean, first, that scripture is inspired? I think the only word there that we probably look at and wonder about is inspired. All's not tricky, scripture's not tricky, God's not tricky, but inspired, what does that mean? Some of your translations may say it's God-breathed. Well, what does it mean that if something was breathed out by you? expired, expiration, however you want to think about that. You breathe it out, well, that's a good word because your breath, as much as my breath, is part and parcel of my life, my existence. It's an extension of me. My breath that I breathe out shows my existence. When I stop breathing, I stop existing. God is eternal, unchanging. It, it, he, he, he is forever and so his word is forever. His truth is forever. It didn't suddenly come into existence when he spoke. God has always been truth. Jesus prays in John 17, 17, Father, your word is truth. So think of the, the, the God-breathed scripture that's in your hands as this was breathed out. It was given by God as an extension of him. So it's exclusively his, as my breath is exclusively mine, as is yours, and let it always be. This word is exclusively God's and eternally God's word. And that's just the simplicity of that word, inspired, God-breathed. It belongs to him. And so if it belongs to him, it includes everything about him. All the character qualities of our 
truthful and holy and eternal God are then found in his word. I think the hard part maybe for some of us to understand is how did the word of God come from God to man? We can believe that this is his divine revelation, but how do I have it in my hands today? In a hard copy. How did he get it from heaven down to earth? Well, if, if you want 2 Timothy 3.16 to be your premier verse in the Bible to understand the truthfulness of God's word, if you want to understand, I guess we can call it the transmission of God's word to man and how we have it today, you need to know 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And like I tried to establish the context in 2 Timothy 3.16 today, saying why did Paul write that in the moment he did? Because he wanted Timothy to have a rock to stand on against the changing tides of the culture and the debauchery that he was amidst. Why does Peter want to tell his readers that the word of God that has been given to them, the prophecies, and then in verse 20, the prophecy of Scripture interchangeable, the writings, it wasn't made by somebody willing themselves to do it, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken God. If you go back to verse 16, um, Peter is providing an apologetic. He's providing a defense for the faith. He's a witness, and he's one of the last apostles still alive who could say, I was with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the defining qualities of being a capital A apostle, not the phony lowercase a apostles today who say, you know, I, I, me and Jesus hung out this morning while I was shaving. You know, he appeared next to me, gave me a few words of private revelation. No, this a capital A apostle is, we're witnesses to the living, and in Paul's case, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul gets in. And Peter's saying, yeah, we, these weren't cleverly devised tales. Look at verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. This isn't some myth that we're following about the power and coming of Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In verse 17 and 18, he, he basically says, look, I, I was there with him in his life, and I was particularly there with him when he revealed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. When we heard the words, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So Peter's saying, look, I was there, but you know what? You may not believe me. There might be something about me, Peter, that you don't like. I mean, he's not saying that, but it could be that. So I want to give you something more sure. If you can't take my word for it, because that's all it would be is Peter's word, take God's word for it. And you might, the reader might be saying, well, what's God's word? The more sure word, Scripture. That's what 19 to 21 are establishing. Though I, a witness of the majesty and the lordship and of Jesus Christ, that's something. Here's what verse 19 says is more sure, more dependable, more reliable. No prophecy of scripture was just a matter of some guy's own interpretation. The, at the time that Peter's writing this, whatever copies of the scriptures they had up until that point, he was trying to say, look, man didn't write this by himself. He was moved by the Holy Spirit, God speaking to him. But it certainly wasn't an act of any human will. Now, here's the cool meta moment of this. Peter is writing this to a church to undergird their faith in their copy of the scriptures. And as he's doing that, God is doing that in him. Isn't that a cool moment? Like what he's writing here. Peter doesn't write in like the margin. Hey, by the way, check this out. I'm doing what I just wrote. 
He's doing what he's writing. And he doesn't really know it, except he does because he's telling us how it's done. Isn't that, it's just like, whoa. There's, you know, the picture of the guy of the picture of the guy that keeps going. That's kind of what Peter's doing here. Whether he knew it or not, God is inspiring him. He was carrying along Peter to write for the sake of the church and all who would read it afterwards that this is how we have the word of God in our hands. It wasn't that Peter says, you know what, I just was sitting around guys and I feel like you really need to hear this, so I'm going to write. No, he's saying this is how all prophecy, all scripture is given to us. Not by a human willing to do it, but God moves this person and speaks to them, and that's revelation. And that's the written scripture in verse 20. We have captured in the Old Testament, not just the written scripture, but where you would have recorded, thus saith the Lord, or, or God spoke to an individual. You have in Exodus 4, when Moses doesn't want to go and speak to Pharaoh and says, what am I going to say to him? I can't say anything to him. Exodus 4.12, God says, now go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you're to say. Or Isaiah 51.16, the prophet Isaiah, where God tells him, I have put my words in your mouth. There's your definition of divine transmission. God puts his words in his prophet's mouth. Because otherwise they have nothing to say. Count me in. Sometimes I sit up there I have a little bit of an existential moment in the front row where it just dawns on me, what am, I, what am I doing here? Sometimes maybe you have that, you know, in the Taco Bell line or something. What am I doing here? You're getting a bean cheese burrito. Okay, cool. Well, I'm sitting up there sometimes, and this does happen, just rarely, but it, it just hits me in its moment of fear. What am I going up to do? Why would anybody come and listen to me? What am I going to say? And then I laugh because I think about the things I know outside of the Bible to say. And there's not a lot. Sandwiches, the Steelers, and sweaters. The three S's. So if I ever come up and preach on that, it's over. Just ride off into the sunset. You'll have a new preaching pastor the next week because I no longer have a word. But I do chuckle because it reminds me it grounds me, it humbles me to say, Adam, you have nothing to say unless I put my word in your mouth. And you have nothing to listen to, Jerry, unless God puts his word in my mouth. And this is the word. This is the word he gives me. And this is all I get to operate out of. And that's what, what any preacher should do, is to realize I, we've got nothing, nothing, nothing to say outside of this. And that's, in, in, in the storyline of the Bible, how the word of God should always come to man. It's his divine revelation. It's him putting the words in the mouth of the prophet. And then in the case in 2 Peter chapter 1, that even those prophets were, were moved to write these things down, and that's how we have the copy of the scriptures in front of us today. Back to 2 Timothy 3.16. In our verse, I think we've covered extensively the, the inspired part. Um, but I think what we might need personally is the all part. So let me exegete the word all. A-L-L means all. Means every single word in God's word is true. The individual words, the totality of the words. All means all the words you like, 
And it means all the words you don't like. All means the words about love and grace and forgiveness and life and heaven. And all means the words about judgment and sin and wrath and death and hell. All is very impartial word, my friend, is what I'm getting at. So when Paul is writing to Timothy, he is saying to, to withstand the tides of the days that you're in, the difficult days, the debauched days, you need to know this about your word. All of it's inspired by God, and so you need to preach all of it. And you need to live all of it. And there are no exceptions to the rule. Means I don't get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that already agree with my presuppositions. Means that I don't get to sit over and be a judge of what I hear from the Word of God. I sit under it as a learner from it. My heart attitude towards the Bible is that this word has been given for my good. (laughs) I am not here for its good. You feel that way about your Bible when you read it? Because it will go on eternally, authoritatively, inerrantly, whether I existed or not. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture stands in authority over me and over everyone. As we say oftentimes at the beginning of the service and the preaching that the grass withers and flower fades, but that word of God keeps on enduring. And that's how you stand. That's how, that's how you don't get blown about. It's when your life is centered on the word of God. So if I were to put it in 2023 terms, my PSA for this morning, there is only one person in the universe who should have the right to talk about my truth. Who is it? God. Because if there's anything that's utterly stupid, idiotic, and ridiculous, that is just in the airwaves that we live and move and have our being in today, it's what? Oh, that's fine for you, but I'm speaking my truth. Oh, really? What's your truth? Uh, That opinion that you now want to raise to the level of fact? That's your truth? Okay. I, I just would like to offer you this, the word of God, as a response. You have no truth apart from God's truth to stand on. But yet today, it's just, it's in the warp and woof of what we hear that, that if you just want to take your opinion, just say the magic words. I have to stand in my truth and then have your bro give you knocks and go, yeah, you're so courageous for standing in your truth. And that passes today. And we're just told back off. And that's, that's um, an embarrassment to Christianity if, if it goes on with us. We can understand it in the world. I mean, it's been, it's been happening now for decades. I remember hearing about postmodernism 
back in my 20s when I was in college at an academic level in the late 90s at my undergrad. And it was in theory then. There's this idea that there is no absolute truth except for that one and that everything's relative. And how are, how are we supposed to get out of our own uh, epistemology, our own uh, sense of our surroundings? Well, we can't. And so everything is subjective. There's no objective truths out there. And I just snoozed through that class like some of you do here, you know, in these drier moments. But... Um, because it just didn't seem a reality then. It seemed ridiculous. How could you go out in the world and say that? It wasn't hitting the airwaves. And it has today. Those seeds, however they were planted from the 60s through the 90s and the, in the universities are now coming to fruition where it's, it's not in the universities you hear it. It's in the interviews. It's on the TV. It's my truth. Now we hear it. And if not only we have to accept it, we're supposed to celebrate it and say, your truth, yeah. Great. It could be a truth that's ruining that person's life. Good for you. Stand in your truth. You're so brave. And here the word of God says, no, the only absolute, entire, unbreakable truth there is in the world is the scripture that's inspired by God. And we are, I mean, our culture is, it's allergic to the idea that anybody has a right to be an authority in someone else's life, and then let alone you add God to that equation. Just, just think about the experiences of your daily life of when somebody is told by someone else what to do and that immediate repulsion to it. It doesn't even have to be God's word, a coach's word, a teacher's word. It's only just unimaginable that I would be told by someone else what I should do. And so we have to fight against it, but our, our, we have to believe in our hearts that what we have in front of us here in God's word is the heart of where we have any authority to stand on. So to, so to wrap things up and to kind of get a good definition for um, the inspiration of God's word and how it actually kind of falls down into some categories to walk away with in, in church history... The, the four major things that would flow out of this idea, if we have an inspired word from God, if it is God's truthful word, come from heaven down to us, how do we define it? What, what buckets, if you will, will it fall into? So for the, the conclusion of this matter is I'll go to Psalm 119. So you can turn there now. I, I just want to walk through Psalm 119 and give you four categories to think about the word of God in when we say, okay, we could have a definition of inspiration, and that's what we looked at already. It says God, the God-breathed word. It belongs to him. But if we have to describe it, what are four ways we can describe the word of God? And rather than pop all over scripture, which you could do, I want to take you to Psalm 119 because it's the chapter in the Bible about the Bible. It tells you. It's just, it's a, it's a, waterfall of, of thoughts and expressions about the, the awe and wonder of the word of God. It's, it's a poem to begin with, which puts it in a unique category. So don't, don't give me like, oh, you know, talking about the Bible and its, its inspiration is kind of dry. This is a love poem about the word of God. He, he loves the word and he wants to talk about it. So Here's four words that, again, borrowing from church history, inerrancy, sufficiency, clarity, and authority. When we talk about the, God's given us an inspired word, and we say, so how do I describe it? 
we can describe it with those four words. The inerrancy of God's word. The sufficiency of God's word. The clarity of God's word. And the authority of God's word. And um, let's just find it in Psalm 119, shall we, for the remaining minutes we have. First, the inerrancy, meaning there are no errors in the word of God. There's no oops. I need to erase that. Psalm 119, verse 160. says it very succinctly. The sum of your word is truth. Now, the sum of your word is truth is really important because if the sum of the word is truth, then all the parts need to be truth. Because if there's something true about absolute truth, there cannot be any error in it. So if it weren't the sum, if there was an erroneous even word or phrase or sentence in the word of God, then the sum of the word wouldn't be truth, right? There would be some error mixed in. It wouldn't be perfect. It wouldn't be pure like Curtis read today in Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect. How do you get an A on your paper at HCA? How do you get 100? Can you miss any? You can't. You got to get them all right. So the sum of God's word is all of it's right. All of it's perfect. There's no error within any of it. It's an inerrant word. But it's not just without error. It's a sufficient word. That in its perfection, it also meets our needs. It's sufficient for our problems to handle our lives. And there's a number of verses. I'll just walk through a few of them. And there's a common theme to them where it talks about what the word does in its sufficiency to revive a person. So let me just walk through them with you. Verse 25 of Psalm 119. My soul cleaves to the dust. Do you think that's a good thing? Probably not. As in your face is in the dirt. You are down and out. You need something to help you. You've hit rock bottom. What pulls you out? Revive me according to your word. As my buddy Alex says, if you're eating out of hubcaps, it's a Brooklyn term. It's awesome. Eating out of hubcaps. Picture it. My soul cleaves to the dust. They didn't have hubcaps when this was written. Revive me. Bring life back to me. How? According to your word. That's the sufficiency of scripture. When you are the most down and out you could be, God's word is sufficient for your need. Just look a few verses later. Maybe you're not eating out of hubcaps. Maybe life isn't that bad on you, but maybe you feel like you're wasting your time. Maybe you feel like you're, you're purposeless. You don't know what to do. Verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways and establish your word to your servant. So whether you're down and out in verse 25 or whether your head's in the clouds and you just, I'm just wasting my time, my eyes are looking at vanity, passing things. I don't have a direction. I need your word to revive me. Push me in your ways and establish your word to your servant. How does he do that? As that which produces reverence for you, verse 38. How, how does the word of God sufficient to meet your needs if you just feel like you're, you're floating? 
It produces a reverence in us. It says, I, I belong to God. He owns me. I'm accountable to him. The sufficiency of the word of God can do that for you. A few verses later, verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. There's that sufficiency language, that it's, it's capable to meet my needs. If I don't forget your precepts, by them you will bring life to me. And then a few verses later, just last one, 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. That's the sufficiency of the word of God to help you. So it's inerrant, it's without error. It's sufficient. It, it, there's, there's nothing that could be added to the word of God to help you in your need. You know, small caveat on this one. You say, well, how come it doesn't explain to me uh, how to uh, change the oil in my car? Because the Bible doesn't need to explain to you how to change the oil. If it was sufficient, it should tell me how to do everything. Well, you know, you can ask a friend how to change the oil of your car. They can help you out. Take it down to take five. But take five can't help you when your soul is cleaving to the dust, can they? That's what you need the word of God for. When you're exceedingly afflicted is what you need the word of God for. So it's inerrant, it's sufficient. How about this one, though? How kind of the Lord? His word is knowable. It's, it's the, the clarity of the word of God. The inerrancy, the sufficiency, the clarity. There's another word I could use, the perspicuity of Scripture, but that word nobody knows, so it doesn't really help for clarity, does it? God's word is clear. It's knowable. There's not secrets for the elite minds only. Everybody has a shot at the table. Look at verses 99 and 100. I have more insight than all my teachers. Life verse of the teenager. Like you teenagers. I'm always for you, by the way. I'll be a youth pastor right now. Drink a Mountain Dew. I have more insight than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. Why? Because I have observed your precepts. What is that saying about the clarity of the word of God? You don't need a PhD to know the word of God. In fact, if you know the word of God, you could have more insight into the things that matter in life than the most learned. I, I hope you college kids that go back to those people with PhDs aren't intimidated by what they know even when it attacks the word of God. Because if they don't have this, what does it say? You have more insight. Insight to what? To what really matters in life. You can understand more than the age, which is another word to talk about the wisest of the wise of the world. Doesn't matter. If you have the word of God, it's clear to the most simple reader. That was the heart of William Tyndale. Because he was coming out of the ivory tower of the, the, the Christian intellectuals of his days. Guys like Desiderius Erasmus who, you know, it was a game to Erasmus. He, he wanted to translate the Bible and he did from the Latin Vulgate back into a new copy of the Greek because he, he just wanted to get back to the sources. But it was an academic game for Erasmus. It was no game to Tyndale. He didn't want to translate it so, so more scholars could just sit around and debate the issues of the Bible. He wanted us to have it. Us ordinary people. 
that if we could have a copy in our own hands, our lives could be changed by it. There's no elitism that goes along with the word of God. So if you're in here this morning and, and maybe you are like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't think the Bible is true. I don't believe in God and, you know, all this sufficiency and clarity or whatever. But I can say this to you this morning, that God has a clear word for you. You may not think it's a sufficient word. You may certainly not think it's an authoritative word. And you certainly don't think it's an inerrant word. But God has a clear word for you today. That he loved you enough to send his son to die for you. In your rebellion against him. In your disbelief in him. In your thinking he has nothing to offer you. You know what clear word he wants you to hear today? That he loves you and sent his son to die for you. How do you receive that? You've got to be humble to receive it. You've got to be broken. You've got to know something else God has clearly to tell you today. You are a sinner that needs saved. The good news is the gospel is he already sent his son to die on the cross that whosoever believeth in his son Jesus Christ will be saved. But your part in it, what you have to see in it is the sin you bring to it. And he wants to make that clear as day for you as well. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody outside of Christ has fallen short of the glory of God by not loving God with everything they should all the time. We can't do that. We're helpless and hopeless without Christ. And he has a clear word for you this morning in the gospel. Look to the Son and be saved. You can't get more clear than that. Look to Christ for your salvation. Stop looking to yourself. And stop looking around and blaming other people if you're not looking at yourself. Look to Christ today. He offers you forgiveness. If you would humble yourself and cry out in humble repentance, be merciful to me, the sinner. He can save you with that clear word this morning. That's the clarity of the word of God. But last but not least, it's, it's an authoritative word. There's no rivals to challenge God's word. In verse 89, and someone 19 settles the matter. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You can't have a more authoritative statement than that. Why? Because just in that simple statement written by a person in love with the word of God who may not try to be go all detailed with it, but look what's precious in that about the authority of the word of God. One, it's eternality. Forever, O Lord. From beginning to end. Of all time, there's never a time when the word of God has not been settled. It's an eternal word. Oh Lord, it's, it's origination belongs to him. It, it's his word. It's nobody else's word. Your word is settled. That's the finality to it. That's the immutability, the unchangeableness of the word of God. It's settled. It's done. It's over. There is no coming at it and challenging it. And it's settled in heaven. It belongs to him. Ownership. And in that simple verse, you see the authority of God's truthful word. Because forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So we don't mess with it. And you add all these things up. Inerrancy, sufficiency, clarity, and authority. 
And those are four really important words. And in church history, those are the four words that we have to protect in the church. But I want to add one more, if I may. And it, you can't miss it when you read Psalm 119. I want to add that we should also be willing to die for the beauty of God's word. Look at verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. Does that matter as much to you as inerrancy? It should. Why should it? Because that's your affections for God. It's his word. And if you love him, you love his word. That's not worshiping the word of God, but in your worship of God, the extension of who he is and what he's done for you is found in his word. Oh, how I love your law. The affections have to be tied to it. Can't just be it's, it's without error. It's sufficient. It's authoritative. Yes, those matter, but to see the beauty of the word of God and to say, I love you, God, and I love your word is to fill it out the right way in the same way that, that you can say, all the right things about your beloved, about your, the person that matters most to you. But if you just don't tell them you love them and want to express it, you can say all the other wonderful things about them, but you got to get to the heart of it too, don't you? Have you ever received a card or a love letter, a poem from the person you love? Did you just throw it away? Or is it still in the shoebox? Or is it framed? That's where the affections come in. That we, we love all the wonderful things about the word of God that, that give us the confidence that it's truthful. But oh, if we don't say, oh, how I love your law, this is an incomplete day. It should move our affections. And so my, my homework as we close is this. Take Psalm 119 this week and I want you to go through and look for those words of affection. Because you know what you'll find the most of? That how I desire it, how I long for it, how I love it. And just to move your heart and affection for the word of God, just spend some time in Psalm 119 this week, just circling or starting in a notebook, all the words of affection, the words of desire, the words of longing. To just throw some logs on the fire in your own heart if it feels like it's grown a little bit cold. Next week we'll come back and we'll see the usefulness clearly laid out. Although I would, I would argue that I think the truthfulness is, it's hard to not say, well, this was useful today. I should love the word of God. Well, we'll get into the particulars of usefulness next week. So come back for that. Let's pray. Father, we thankful, thankful to you for the truthfulness of your word this morning. We thank you that it's perfect. It's pure. We thank you that it's sufficient for our every need. And you know those deepest needs and your word helps even expose those when we come to it. We thank you that it is clear that we can, we can read it and sing it and hear it and pray it and share it. To whatever level that you have given us the ability to understand it. Thank you for, for doing that for us wherever we are in the map. And then thank you for its authority that we, uh, we are stabilized by the authority of your word, that we are not on shaky ground. And we thank you for the beauty and the loveliness of your word, that it does, 
move our affections, that it does get from our head to our heart where it should be closest to us. All these things you have granted to us by your promises kept in Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.